Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Well, I foolishly decided we should start recording while I still have a cough drop in my mouth. All right. Well, we can hold off if you want. Uh, you no, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from here. Yeah, I'll be careful about it. So, um, well, David, we're going to continue our uh, two-week series that we didn't really intend, um, <laughs> in which we talk uh, to, uh, David, Sundance superstars. Yeah. All right. We talked to Susan Burke, co-writer of Smashed. Yeah. And now we have the director... Hold one on. Of, oh. I'm going to stop you there. Oh, okay. Why is that? Because I want to get to something real quick what, before now, we introduce... David, what is that? Uh, I, I want to make sure that people are going to be able to get the full timber and range of our guest's voice. I'm glad in, you said timber. The, That's what I... Yeah. In, in their ears. And the way that they do that, mm-hmm. the way that you ensure that, is by buying earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. What you do is you go to tweakedaudio.com. Mm-hmm. You peruse their many different uh, styles and colors. Okay. Um, give me uh, one example uh, of one of the one of the colors. Blue. Okay. That, yeah. All right. I'm with you. Um, yeah. And you, you you pick one, all of which are are approved by by David and Tyler of Battleship Pretension. Mm-hmm. We are we are fans of this product. We are ideologically on board. Yes. With what they do. So you pick one or more. Buy some for 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 as gifts for friends. They will appreciate it. Mm-hmm. These are great earbuds. Then when you get to checkout, you put in the offer code Pretension. Mm-hmm. You get 33% off your very wise purchase. Now, David, I'm not good with percentages. Put it to me in a fraction. One third. One third. Yeah, one third off. All right. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a steal at twice the price. Well, man, now I don't know what to make. <laughs> yeah, don't even try to do the math. Just take my word for it there. So I want to make sure people know and have taken care of all that mm-hmm. before we move on. Now, to, to our guest. To our guest, who is also a Sundance superstar. Yeah. David, I feel guilty that I neglected to discuss tweaked audio earbuds, but I will take solace in the fact that we have a, a guest who's a... David, he's kind of a big deal. Uh-huh. Um, there's a, uh, when, when our uh, writer, Matt Warren, uh, came back from Sundance and talked about, uh, uh, talked about his experience... Um, one, a couple films stood out to him, but one of them was a film called Room 237. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the story. He told me, here's this, this film, Room 237. Mm-hmm. And he told me about it. He told us about it. And it sounded amazing. And then he said, the director, his name is Rodney Asher. And I was like, Rodney Asher, that sounds familiar. But I didn't know what from. And uh, so I just kind of kept it to myself. And that's when I realized, I think I've gotten an email from Rodney Asher. And sure enough, I had. And so I said, well, here's our, here's our opportunity to really exploit the slightest of connections that we have. Because <laughs> this guy is, you know, going places. And so I sent an email to this Rodney Asher that you've been hearing so much about, David. And I uh, said, do you want to come on the show? And he said, absolutely. It would be a dream come true. <laughs> something like, I, I don't totally remember. Something like that. Uh, and he's here now. The director of Room 237, Rodney Asher. Rodney, how you doing? I'm good. G- glad to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> now, you are a lot. Now, uh, this email you had sent to Tyler something like two years ago. Fam- it- famously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> try and, try and uh, get right up on top of that, Mike. Um, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll fix it. We'll fix it in post, of course. Yeah. But um, uh, now, what ha- you sent him an email, and did Tyler immediately respond thankful for the 
for the uh, oh, for no, the attention. No. Oh no, no, no! He blew it off and hurt my feelings. <laughs> that, that's that's the impression that I'm getting. You, what you should have done is addressed it to David at BattleshipRetention.com. You would have gotten concierge treatment. No, no, the show was way too big for me back then. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now uh, people. Um, I'm not good at answering emails. All right, I'm sorry. I uh, I wasn't going to bring it up. I was you guys be- decided to make this whole thing of it. I was uh, no. I you know I, a solid month went by before I responded to my brother's ha- uh, Merry Christmas uh, voicemail. So it's cool. I moved on with my life. Okay. But apparently, it's been keeping you up at night. <laughs> it doesn't take much for that. I mean, well, how much of this uh, this rejection fueled the making of Room Two Thirty Seven? Oh, right? it's that. That was absolutely what drove this. Was, I'm going to show Tyler. <laughs> He's going to ask me to come on. So. And, uh, I'm sorry to have interrupted you there. Um, d- listeners who listened to the episode when uh, Matt was on talking about his Sundance uh, favorites uh, might remember two- Room 237. But for those who didn't, Rodney, will you uh, give a, a summary, if that's possible? Uh, give us an idea of what the film is. Sure. Well, I mean, it's the story of five people who've all been sort of profoundly affected by Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh-huh. And we really take our time and we try to dive into... A lot of the ideas that these people have about the movie's hidden messages and its secrets and its symbols and what they think it's really about. Uh-huh. And, well, can, can you tell us or should we see the film, what is The Shining all about? Well, I don't want to give it all away. You can right. give us the briefest of overviews of what they think and then you can say definitively, of course, what it actually is about, <laughs> what you think. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the the real, I mean, one of the real fuels of the movie is my interpretation of The Shining is pretty mundane. I mean, I've always been fascinated fascinated by it ever since I ran out of the theater in terror at the age of twelve. But if I look at it now, and certainly I look at it now differently than when I was a kid, today I look at it as the story of you know a man who wants to be a writer has these creative ambitions except for his stupid family gets in his way and is always bugging him and keeping him from blooming into into growing into a beautiful butterfly um which of course cuts very close to home mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um you know and all the time that i was making this movie and a lot of the process of making the movie involved me sitting at what what looks very much like a typewriter mm-hmm. Alone in the middle of a big empty room, right by a giant staircase, you know. Only so, so when my wife would come by and ask how it was going, I would certainly try to make an effort to be a lot less of a dick than Jack Nicholson is <laughs> in that movie. And you know, there's a similar you know kind of dilemma that as I was midway through it, it was hard to know whether what I was working on was nothing but gibberish that made sense to nobody but me, mm-hmm. or if it was actually something that other normal human beings would find interesting at all. Um, you know, so that's you know, how I relate to the movie, mm-hmm. um, which is a world away from these folks who see in it sort of allegories of history, of genocide, of murder. They see amazing synchronicities for how it affects their own life um the smallest in ways that are much stronger than the parallel that i just drew um one of them sees 
a sec- a buried secret in Stanley Kubrick's own life that he's given clues to mm-hmm. um, in the course of the film, um, whether it was something he did um, hoping that it would be discovered after he died or if it was a compulsion and he couldn't help but let these clues um, leak out. Um, people come at it from a lot of different directions, and I try to you know give them plenty of room to expand mm-hmm. on their ideas. Yeah, the thing that, that Matt specified, and we're, we're going to... Uh I think we'll come back to Room 237 a little bit later, but we're going to go back and find out some biographical information. But uh, the thing that, that Matt had commented on that he found specifically interesting was the lack of judgment uh, in the film for the people with the more, I guess the polite way to say is the more outlandish uh, interpretations and the very fact that, you know, I just said outlandish and the film seems to just be like, this is their interpretation. Here's another one over here. And um, was that something that you specifically wanted that, like, you didn't want to make anybody look like a like a kook or like they were, you know, reaching too too far? Well, I mean, I don't see any of the – I didn't see any of them as kooks. Okay. You know, and when I would – most of these people, I would come across what they had written on the internet. And, you know, at 2 in the morning as I'm scrolling over page after page and looking at frame grabs – it's all very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like Tyler said, let's put uh, Room 237 on the back burner for a second. I'm going to ask you some questions about uh, about Rodney Asher. Where, where are you from? How did you uh, get into filmmaking? How did you come to be in Los Angeles? Um, well, I mean, born in Massachusetts, raised in Florida. You know, growing up, I always wanted to be a comic book artist. Uh-huh. Um, but at a certain point, almost sort of on a whim, um, I was looking through college catalogs in high school and the University of Miami where I was planning on applying had what looked like a pretty good film program. And I said, well, it's kind of similar. You know, it's like technical and storytelling. But maybe if I was in film instead of comics, I'd actually get to work alongside other people. And we'd have like this awesome kind of merry band of pirates instead of me cooped up alone in a room um, all day and all all day every day. But of course, now that the amazing digital revolution has come... Uh I wind. I find myself cooped up in a room alone by myself day after day. So the joke's kind of on me. Um, but you know, after school, I was you know making like punk rock music videos with friends, as well as sort of paing on commercials and like kickboxing movies shot in Miami. Um, and at a certain point, you know, we just decided we wanted to break out into the bigger, more mainstream world of filmmaking. So we came out um, to the West Coast. Who were the uh, Florida punk acts that you were? Uh, well, actually, to? I did something way, way at the beginning of Marilyn Manson's career when oh, he wow. was Marilyn Manson and the Spooky Kids. <laughs> we shot a bunch of their live shows. Me and my buddy Sid did like crazy slide projections for um, that, that that would play on stage behind them. Shot a couple of concert videos. Um, then there was like some industrial acts from that day, um, you know, people who were really influenced by Ministry or Revco or Skinny Puppy or those kinds mm-hmm. of bands that we were all really into um, back in the day. Um, so I've I've seen a, a, a number of your um, you know short films, uh, and it, I had uh, I had posted one on the website, and that is how I think uh, how we got in contact with each other. That's a nice way of saying you contacted me. Um, and it was called Dog Days, and it featured good friend of the show, Josh Fadum, and other friends of the show, Paul Rust and Whit Hertford. Um, 
And then that led me to see a number of the uh, short films that you'd made. And I can say this not merely because you are my uh, guest, but I love, I'd say, all of them. Um, specifically, there is one, uh, Dog Days I enjoy a great deal. <laughs> but I specifically enjoy one called Visions of Terror, which, let's try this. Uh, how would you describe Visions of Terror? Well, I mean, it's sort of a Nightmare on Elm Street parody. Mm-hmm. It's this character that Josh Fadum came up with, which was, you know, maybe a sort of inept boogeyman mm-hmm. whose idea of scaring people is reading to them the back of videotape boxes <laughs> um, with especially, you know, like frightening descriptions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was doing this character live for a while. And at one point he, we got together and he said, you know, we should film it. And the original conception was just to film it as a monologue. But at a certain point, you know, we blew it up into this whole nightmare on Elm Street thing. And for the longest time, the struggle was, is the joke that the other characters think that he's ridiculous and aren't scared, or should they be terrified? Mm-hmm. And I think happily we made the choice that they should be terrified, yeah. <laughs> that they should see him the way he sees him. Because when, <laughs> when he presented it live and he would have like music, he would do it on stage with um, the Tulsa Skull Swingers. Uh-huh. And they would play like really frightening, like scrapey guitar um, music kind of – so, kind of like the noise sections of a Bauhaus track, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked that presentation of it straight. Mm-hmm. So we shot a quasi. So we shot a quasi straight, and mm-hmm. there's a couple of. It gets more and more fantastical as she gets sucked into you know sort of his world, um, you know. And of course, because it's all about VHS, we got very nerdy about. I think there are three different versions of it. There's mm-hmm. the. Um, Fully restored widescreen version, although I think that one has got a um, – the conceit of it is it's a Laserdisc transfer. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the, VHS, there's the VHS version, which um, I was delighted for the, for the longest time I'd wanted to do something with a pan and scan effect. And this one, because we shot it in a, in, in a widescreen format in camera, we were able to do like a real – pan and scan because some of the compositions just did not make any sense in a four by in a four by three crop. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we would, so in After Effects I would do the pan and scan and then you know dub it out into VHS. Although unfortunately, I think the VHS version is so degraded it's difficult <laughs> to even see. It's <laughs> yeah. difficult to even see what's going on. Although I guess that's part of the joke. Yeah. Um, but Josh's character is just amazing and he plays it. He's, he's so he, he's he's so committed and he's actually like kind of spooky in this really oh, weird way. He's de- like the. Just the look of him is actually kind of creepy, like with the with the weird mop of hair and just like completely black skin, but the white rectangle over his eyes. David, have you seen this? No, I haven't. Sounds kind of weird, right? When you when it I describe it great. like that, it sounds fantastic. And then the voice that he uh, uses is wonderful, <laughs> and that and that I think is is like the the mark of brilliance is if you have a voice that is frightening, and then you have it consist like progressively say more and more not frightening things like for example hearing a voice say the words elliot gould <laughs> is not frightening it is ridiculous and uh and so yeah uh, i will um perhaps we'll put it in a in a post on uh, on the new site um 
well, so we, that people can watch it. There's a we made a special YouTube page for it that mm-hmm. has all the versions and the trailer, and it's and it's sort of in the guise of the Ultimate Visions of Terror fan, who includes <laughs> his other favorite movies and links to. I found this amazing world of people who do these YouTube tours of their um, video collections, and some of them, you know, they have to break them off. Someone getting murdered yeah, on the corner outside the window. <laughs> they make um, every time we do a like daytime recording here, <laughs> something weird happens outside. Wasn't there? Didn't someone get arrested right outside your window? One uh, day? Yes, and I believe Fadum was here for that. That's and right. The two of you narrated. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> well, and, and so we linked it to some of these uh, these amazing videos of these guys all across the country who give these they kind of like haul videos where they just give you a tour of their VHS collection and they're like, "Up oh, here's alligator." That one was pretty good. And he holds the box and he flips and he's like, here's the abyss. kind of sucked. Here's, I've, got a, I've got three copies. This is the one with the cover that I like the best because it's got the hologram. And it goes on like, okay, now we got to the Bs. Now we get to the Cs. And it's like, okay, so we're running out of time. So we'll come back for the next tape. Um, it's got, I, got all the, I, got, I got all the Texas Chainsaw Massacres. This one's my fat Texas Chainsaw Legacy. Eh, the new – the new, the but it is interesting. Matthew McConaughey's in this one. Um, and they go on and on and on and on throughout their um, entire collection. It seemed like a natural fan base for <laughs> Visions of Terror. Very, yeah, very much so. And, uh, and yeah, so listeners, I will, I will actually – Give it its own post so that you can uh, you can see it on the Battleship Pretension website, um, and there are, and Dog Days I enjoy a great deal uh, as well, um, and that one is I'll sum up and I don't mean to kind of give it a short shrift because it's very very uh, very good, but um, uh, Josh and Paul Rust play dogs, and it basically is just a day in the life of a dog, and they're dressed as dogs. And they bark, but they are still speaking English, and this is what a dog is thinking. And this is what a dog is communicating. And I know this may sound weird. I feel like that's got to be what – like like if I were to read a dog's mind, that's probably what it is. And just – and like when they they find connections with each other and just like, do you like – what is it? Do you like – Milk bone? Milk bone. Yes. Me too. (laughs) <laughs> and then, and then, then they move on to they continue panting. Um, so I enjoy that uh, a great deal. And then um, now I do want to bring up one more, and then we'll get into uh, the S from Hell, and then we'll get back into Room Two Thirty Seven and, and Friday the Thirteenth. Tyler's got the whole episode bullet pointed in. I got it worked out. So well, and it's partially because you had sent me a, a disc of, of some of your films, and some I had already seen, and some I had not, and so I watched them all uh, in one evening, and and I just had so many questions about some uh, about some of them. Others, it's not that I didn't have questions, but it, the films seemed to answer them themselves. So, uh, I don't know if you listen to the show. Uh, I do, but maybe uh, I wouldn't say religiously. Okay, but. odd you say the word religiously, because um, I am a uh, I am a Christian, and I, I consider myself very fortunate with many of the churches that I have gone to. There was one church though in Chicago, very nice people, very welcoming people, um, but it was there weren't a lot of people my age there, so I wound up going to a different church. But this this church did have a big display of uh, tracts, and one of them I think I know where you're going with. Oh this. yeah, one of them was called I believe somebody goofed, 
So and I and I remember looking at it at the time and just being like, "This is." I Wait, mean, the art, the artwork's kind of interesting. Isn't the Jack Chick thing? Is that what it is? Absolutely. Okay. okay. And and I don't remember a lot of the details of it, but I do remember yeah. that it's you know this uh, older preacher because it's it's fully illustrated. It's this older uh, like preacher or just kind of you know what have you uh, talking about. Uh, you know, saving your soul and all of that, and then this this younger kid is listening and saying, "You're making a lot of sense." He doesn't say that, but it's that's the general attitude. And then this uh, smooth, cool cat comes along with a cigarette and everything, David, uh-huh. um, and he convinces the kid, "Hey, this this guy's a crackpot," and he winds up like pushing the old man in the street or something, so that he just topples over. And then the kid's like, "I guess you're right. I guess I'll go home with you, stranger." Because like they don't know each other, to my knowledge, and then they uh, they're driving along and they try to beat a train and the train kills them and then the kid they they both wind up in hell and the kid's like, hey, wait a second, why are we here? That guy was right. You goofed. I didn't goof. <laughs> the young man, you goofed. And he pulls off his mask and he's really been the devil all along. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, and I remember reading that uh, and thinking this is. Silly, and from a Christian point of view, part of me is like, this can't possibly have done anybody any good, right? Like, it's it really is like the dragnet, the Jack Webb kind of Christianity of like it's scary in theory, but it's also just just well goofy. Somebody goofed. Um, so I so when I saw the title of one of your films. I saw somebody goofed, and it had been years since I had read this track. And I'm like, somebody goofed. I wonder if this has anything to do with that weird track that I read all those years ago. And sure enough, it is, but it is w- really wonderful uh, because it's it uses a lot of the original illustrations, but it adds to it, and it, in a in a sort of a kid stays in the picture kind of uh, kind of thing. I don't mean to say it's just like that but that's kind of what i was reminded of uh and so i was curious having now been talking for a while what inspired you to do this well i mean there was a couple things um that was soon after me and a couple friends moved to um california Mm. and at that point i was working um with a partner sid um and we were doing all our films together and before then everything we had done was basically live action Mm -hmm. um and we wanted to explore some of this newfangled computer stuff. And Sid was always, like, amazing with computers. And he's still doing kind of astonishing um, high-tech stuff um, and, and fully animated music videos. But we wanted to teach ourselves um, After Effects. Um, so on the one hand, we needed a project to sort of practice on. And then on the other those books were those tracks were something that we were always kind of fascinated by. I mean, I'm an old school comic book nerd mm-hmm. and I love, you know, Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt and this thing was in this weird sort of the these Jack Chick tracks were sort of floating in the subcult floating between the subcultures of you know, religious folks and like punk rockers and comic book nerds and everybody was and you know, people people that I knew were all kind of fascinated by them because the stories, you know, and there are hundreds of them and they're all very um, 
Tales from the Crypt or Twilight Zone-esque, they always have a twist ending, only yeah. the stakes are eternal damnation mm-hmm. or salvation instead of, um, I don't know, just death or <laughs> misadventure yeah. like in like those other shows. Um, so early on, we decided we would do a Jack Chick tract, and this seemed to be the most iconic one. Um, and it had um, this great dramatic reversal and in true epic style there's a descent into the underworld um there's this great moment where you know the kid has to decide which of the two paths going to go and we could cl- we could see pretty clearly that it had a lot of dramatic potential mm-hmm. um and i mean we had never seriously considered doing a parody cuz it seemed like the interesting challenge was to play it straight and try to really bring that world to life mm-hmm. um because it's like the scale of the original comics is always very small like the the, the, f- the physical printing is like three inches by an inch and a half yeah they're teeny and we wanted to do it grand like so many comic books have been turned into hundred million dollar movies <laughs> why not these jack chick tracks yeah <laughs> um and so it probably took us like a year and a half i mean these were this was pretty these are pretty early days of you know desktop computer animation this was i don't know 95 maybe um you know over 10 12 years ago now 13 however <laughs> it goes it goes back a little ways mm-hmm. um i mean this is a very long way to say we wanted to learn computer animation mm-hmm. and we thought creatively the challenge of bringing one of these things to life and playing it straight and making yeah. it as dramatic as possible yeah. um, was kind of a, an interesting challenge. And it was your decision to play it straight that I found interesting and also admirable to the point that I, fa- I found myself wondering, like, you know, if if let's say one of the one of my uh, fellow Christians from and I don't I don't mean to to mock them, but they're you know, I. I'm perhaps a bit more artistically minded, and so I tend to like uh, nuance and subtlety. Um, and that's not what these are about, of course. They're very overt, so that's fine. But um, if one of the people who maybe would have found that very effective, if they f- saw the video, would they know – would they think like, this is great. This Like they really took the the tone of the, of the original tract and just really – really uh, – expanded it you know and just like and they might use it as a sort of ministry tool like whereas i mean i i see it and i just sort of i guess i just sort of assumed that you're probably not totally on board with the (laughs) various things in 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 the track but um but i remember thinking like good like good for you for playing it straight for a number of reasons one is you don't really need to mock it because the straighter you play it, the more it kind of mocks itself. But also just uh, just a general lack of judgment. And based on what you're saying about like Room 237, that seems to be a, a recurrent theme of like, why, why would I do that? That's, that's uninteresting. Why not just meet the, the work where it is at? Yeah, well, I mean, what I find interesting about them is how, is, is how much passion is behind mm-hmm. those stories. Um, I also, t- to make something goofy would lose all the power of that yeah. passion and all that in the mission behind it. Mm-hmm. I know actually we were, um, I forget at what point, but you know, after we made the film, I think 
I don't remember if we got a letter from Chick Ministries or if we sent them a, a co- or we sent them something out of the blue. But at a certain point, we sent them a copy of the film, and we got a really nice letter back. That's and cool. I was, you know, really delighted that Jack and those folks um, appreciated the film. Hmm. Um, and the Suicide Girls gave it a good review too. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm thrilled to be able to walk both those lines. <laughs> Um, so I do want to uh, move on to the S from Hell, which I had heard about, and I think I saw like a tra- like a trailer for something. Yeah, there's a trailer um, uh, back when it was first uh, sort of made its mark because that was at Sundance as well, correct? Yeah, in uh, 2010. Yeah, and so um, so I was like, "What is this? Is this real? I couldn't tell if it was real or not based on the trailer." Um, and then when I, you know, followed up uh, on it. Uh, elsewhere, I was like, okay, it's it's not, but it seems fascinating. And uh, for those that, I, I guess uh, you don't think it's real. I feel like it's not. All right, I'm in suspense here because I haven't seen it. What's let uh, me and the listeners? Well, in. it's. I mean, I I that's the impression I got when I that I had <laughs> going into watching it because this was all based on what other people had said about the film and the trailer. So I went into the um, the film itself when I watched it maybe like a week ago um, assuming it was not real and I feel like I still assume it's not real well, when, when you say not can, real can we talk you... real quick about what it is yes okay uh, Rod- Rodney go ahead alright um, <laughs> I'm not sure which level of reality we're talking about here <laughs> okay. or we're, we're debating here uh-huh. but to describe the film in kind of a straightforward way there are audio tracks of people describing childhood phobias of the Screen Gems logo. Uh-huh. Like, you know, when the monkeys are bewitched or um, the Flintstones would end on, like, in syndication, the show would, the show would come to a close. And then after the op- closing credits, you would see this weird kind of logo appear. You know, uh-huh. it's kind of like an S. It's an abstracted S with a dot in the center. Um, and it had sort of the synthesizer theme. Um, um, so we've got these people describing how, as kids, they were terrified of it, and then visual, and then we, and then, you know, we never see their faces. Then the visual track is found footage and animation and graphics that illustrate what these people are saying. Sometimes literally, sometimes kind of subjectively. Okay, so that's the film. Right. How long is the film? About ten minutes. Okay. And. So yeah, now well now I don't know what to think. Damn it! Um, but I but I love the movie and I think it's I think it's really great and I think uh, your willingness to explore without again without judgment explore like sort of the absurdity of this. Well, if it's fake, like what what would I have been judging? Well, I mean, you, you could you could have like made it a general like for example, any uh, any uh, any phobia that doesn't make sense to most people. Like, for example, I'm, I'll say terrified of spiders. Um, now, spiders, that one is, that's, a, that's really high up there. But I had heard about a certain type of arachnophobia that said, that made people afraid to open kitchen cabinets because they were convinced that there wouldn't be a spider in there 
the thing was so full of spiders, so overflowingly <laughs> full of spiders that if they were to open it, a wall, a mountain of spiders would fall on them. Oh, that's horrible. Like, that is horrifying. But at the same time, I still like I'm scared of spiders. I still open my kitchen cabinets, you know. And so that level of of fear and concern, it would be easy to say like, okay, well that person's just crazy, and they might be, but. But to me, like what I always saw, what what I saw from in the S from Hell is an exploration of just the various things that might might frighten us, and the lack of judgment in in that, and being like, we've all got our stuff, and the, these people, real or, or uh, otherwise, they are scared of the Screen Gems logo, and who are we to judge? That's what I took it as. Fair enough. So, can I ask you, Rodney, what are your phobias? Um. Good question. I mean, I don't want to give the false perception that I am fearless. Uh-huh. Um, I've got a little bit of stranger danger. Uh-huh. You know, um, I I don't like asking strangers for directions or for help. Um, uh, I don't like sending food back at restaurants. I don't like that either. Um, I, I I hate returning things to stores. I I don't know if that's a phobia, but I have the same thing. Like I I. D- when I step into a store or a restaurant, like I, I just want to make the wait staff or the people who work there comfortable with me. Even though I know, like, based on the rules of consumerism, it's supposed to be the other way around. Mm-hmm. I just I want to make their day as easy as possible. I don't want to be any sort of trouble to them at all. Oh yeah, uh, no, I'm 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 the same. But I know my parents always. Like to return a lot of uh, for for some reason we were always going to the store to return stuff, and I was, and it horrified me, especially if they would start to get in a fight with the sales. St- I would just try to disappear, you know, and walk into the hide behind hide in one of those circular racks of clothes. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, at parties. I'm afraid that I'll talk to a stranger and they'll ask two or three questions about about me, and they'll very quickly realize that I'm insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's. Anxiety mm-hmm. more yeah. than I think, you know, a full-on phobia. I have. Uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but we've talked about it before. Like the uh, imp of the perverse. Like I have. Yeah. I always have a fear that I'm going to uh, w- uncontrollably just say something offensive to a person when I've just met them. Especially, that. God forbid, if the person is a religious or ethnic minority, that I'm going like I would never use like these horrible slurs, but I have this fear that they're just going to pop out of me. Because- or maybe they can read your mind <laughs> <laughs> and they know that you're thinking them. Mine, um, and I think I've said it before when we were discussing the imp of the perverse. The thing that always gets me is like it's a challenge to myself that I've never discovered. I've never actually found out if I could do it or not. It's like how quickly could I ruin this friendship? Like if I'm talking to like a friend of twelve, like twelve, fifteen years, it's like, how many words would it take, and what would those words be to make this person never talk to me again? And uh, and I'm trying to think what it would be, and I think it would have to be like insulting their wife or something like that. Like it would have to be mm-hmm. something. Like, not insulting them. I feel like they could get over it. But insulting something they love dearly. I think that's what it would have to be. Uh, Back to phobias. I've uh, always been, and I think this is a fairly common one, uh, wasps, hornets, bees, any, like, flying insect that stings, I am irrationally, like, I will will run away (laughs) if if I'm in the presence of one. But I have found myself uh, also a very common thing that I didn't used to have more recently becoming more afraid of heights. 
than I ever was. I mean, the, when I was in like middle school and I saw Point Break for the first time and I saw them, I saw them jump out of airplanes. I was like, I want to do that. Just last week, I'm watching The Amazing Race and they're yeah. jumping out of airplanes. I'm sitting on my couch, tense and sweating, just watching people on TV jump. As out of you airplanes. get older, those bones get more brittle. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just more aware of my own mortality and all that stuff. But I'm I'm developing a fear of heights that I didn't used to have. There's I, I don't know if you guys saw Tower Heist, but there's. A part where Matthew Broderick is hanging out of a. I hear window. it's very. I hear it's very good. It's better than you think it is. I I I, I liked it. Um, but uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I had sweaty palms just watching Matthew Broderick hang out of a window. That never would have happened to me. Mission uh, Impossible must have killed you. I haven't seen it yet. Hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I saw that. Uh, I saw that Amazing Race, and and I've I've always been uh, scared of heights, but that where it's like it's like. People are like, well, what if the chute doesn't open? It's like, well, y- it probably will. But even if it does, that's still a rough landing. Like they, <laughs> they look like they just broke their ankle. Yeah, and I don't want to do that. So I like to think all of my phobias are totally rational. I'm also claustrophobic. So <laughs> well, let's let's get back back to, to back room two thirty seven. Yes. Um, now, do you have? Uh, I, I don't know if you need to maintain distance as the director, but do you have? Uh, uh, now, you, you, you talked about how you never, before the movie, you know, considered some of these things, these interpretations of of The Shining. But how much have you been swayed by them, uh, having done the film? A lot. I mean, hmm. clearly, there's something that... I don't believe everything that everyone says. Uh-huh. But each of them, and there are plenty of others, There's there, there's a lot of other stuff out there, in fact... In a weird way, the last year or two, it seemed the amount of people considering the real meaning of The Shining has increased exponentially um, just as I was making the movie. Um, every Almost everything that I read or everyone that I talk to leaves me with at least one or two things that change the way mm-hmm. I watch the movie. Um, now there was um, you talk about recent things, and I don't know if this is discussed in your movie or not because I haven't haven't seen it. But there was one maybe about a year ago that I saw about the spatial impossibility of the Overlook Hotel that I found rather fascinating. Did you see this one? No, I don't think so. Uh, about how even within the same shots, it's clear that this place can't physically exist. Like there's a part where uh, Danny is riding his tri- tricycle down the hall and he's passing door after door into rooms, but then in the same shot, it goes around the corner and you're overlooking the main sort of foyer with it. So those walls, unless the room is only a foot and a half deep, there's no way there could be rooms in the wall that he just passed within the same shot. Hmm. And that that was all done intentionally to disorient. Yeah, we do talk about that. Okay. The one you're talking about was probably the work. There's this British guy, um, Rob Ager, who's had some mind blowing, um, commentary that he's written in some YouTube videos that he's made. Mm -hmm. Um, He's working on his own DVD, so he decided not to participate in our movie. Mm-hmm. But one of our mm-hmm. other interviewees has also noticed some other similar impossibilities, and she's made these amazing maps that oh, are incredibly cool. dense and annotated, um, You know, where there's a window here to the outside, which doesn't make sense because this room has to be in the middle of the building. This hallway leads to nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. This bathroom has... If you follow the path that these characters take, one room is inside of another room. Um, and I think the imp- 
and there are different there are different people of different ideas about what that means. I think the simplest explanation is that he wants you to know that there's something wrong, but you can't quite get your head around it. Mm-hmm. That the hotel is this MC Escher like impossibility. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I think one was that the. Uh when you give him the tour at the beginning, the kitchen is in one place, but at the end, when he's got them locked in the food uh, like cabinet, the kitchen is clearly in a whole different part of or the hotel. Or they go in one door and then they come out. They they they, they enter one of the 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 pantry, and when they leave it, they leave. Although from the inside, from the shot, you see them coming in and out of the same door, but when they cut back out to the hallway, they're exiting from another door. Uh-huh. And different ways to look at it are that this is about. An MC Escher-esque impossibility, or maybe they're teleporting, or maybe the hotel is shape-shifting. Uh-huh. In, in any case, it's super fascinating yeah. and kind of endless fodder for examination. So one of the things that I, that I find uh, interesting about the concept – again, we haven't seen the film, so uh, that's really the only thing I can speak to – is that – I mean, I have to assume, like, there are other movies out there that people have all kinds of theories about. What is it about The Shining specifically that brings out such – and without without spoiling some of the interpretations, because that, from what I understand, that's sort of the pleasure of the film is to hear, you know, some that you would never think of otherwise. Um, what is it about The Shining that you think really brings out such – diverse uh, interpretations. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, there are other films that people speculate about. Um, And even if you're talking about Kubrick films, you might think that 2001 would be the one that would generate the most. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to be the most open-ended puzzle of them all. The most ponderous. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But for whatever reason, The Shining seems to be the one that's generated the most. Although Eyes Wide Shut is starting to build up a whole world of um, people who see the Illuminati and things um, inside that secret organization that he goes into. Um, You know, I would think that Jodorowsky movies or David Lynch movies or some of these others that are more plainly symbolic and less rational and less literal would generate more but i think it's something about like the way you know if there was a venn diagram of art movie and mainstream movie that the shining is like right in the center you know it's the movie that is experimental in some ways but that so many people have seen and have seen many times and it's accessible just on the surface level of the characters and story you know and people are into the characters and story enough that they want that they they want that they want to know more, and certainly Kubrick has a reputation as a perfectionist and an artist and a guy who is meticulous in his planning. So, what you might dismiss as arbitrary in another movie, you have reason to believe is purposeful in one of his films. Um, yeah, it is. It's interesting. Um, in I guess last week's episode, we're not totally sure how we're going to post these. Uh, we were talking with uh, Susan Burke about The Shining and just how it's it's different things to different people. But when talking to like you know film nerds and film snobs about it, you get a completely. I mean, it, it feels just in the way they talk about it like a completely different film than if you were to talk about say horror nerds 
or like you said, just people who just like movies and that's it. They don't they don't uh they're not huge movie fans, but they don't dislike movies and they just enjoy them. Nothing wrong with that. But like it's amazing how little in certain communities how little like Jack Nicholson is talked about. Like the film is talked about, the hotel is talked about. And like you said, there's Storing characters, and one of the characters is is played in a very over the top and in a good way, a very over the top way by Jack Nicholson. But in some circles, including mine, when I think of The Shining, I don't think of him first. And he's the guy on the cover. He's you know here's Johnny, the whole thing, the killing Scatman Crothers with an axe. Spoilers, like it's <laughs> it's it's just interesting that it that just from at the very least. What the thing? The first thing that pops into somebody's mind, depending on what community they feel like they're a part of, um, it all it always seems to be something different. Yeah. Well, I know talking a lot about the movie, you know, the last two years or so. Yeah. If you were gonna, if you were gonna ask people, you know, to just sort of make a list of what are the things the movie is about, I think one thing that they would never mention, which is clearly a huge part of the movie and, pro- and, my, and possibly the most important part of the book, if you, especially if you think about the environment that the book was released um, in the 70s, is ESP, hmm. which was a gigantic you know, fascination for people in the 70s. And all of – like in those early Stephen King books like Firestarter mm-hmm. and um, The Dead Zone and The Shining are about people with um, – um, ESP and psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the shining of the title. That's the shining of the title. Yeah. And I bet they would say, man goes crazy, ghosts, axe, hotel, snow. Yeah. Like Alcoholism is what we talked about last week. Yeah. yeah. Which is Stephen King's big thing. Mm-hmm. Famously, one of his big criticisms of the movie uh, that it didn't mm-hmm. focus enough on the theme of alcoholism. We talk, well, we, this actually brings up because we were last week or last recording, whenever it aired, we had Susan Burke who co-wrote uh, Smashed, which is at Sundance, which mm-hmm. is about uh, alcoholism, and we talked about um, The Shining, and we talked about. Have you seen the TV miniseries, the ABC miniseries with Stephen Weber? I've seen it and listened to the um, director's commentary. So have yeah. both of us. Oh, the commentary is amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, I believe it starts with uh, Stephen King being like, "Hey, this is Stephen King. I wrote the damn thing," <laughs> just in that very Stephen Kingy kind of way. Yeah, no, he's great. But uh, and I, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think I watched The Shining at too young an age. I never found it frightening. And I don't think I ever really appreciated it. And then I saw the the miniseries, and I loved that because that was more character-oriented and really explored the the real tragedy of Jack Torrance. Um, but I think as I've gotten older, like I ha- I still – I own the miniseries and I – you know, I still stand by parts of it. But the more I think of it, of course, the more I really respect uh, the film and – and yeah, it's it's one that I feel like I don't know. It's Kubrick in general, in general, because I'm as listeners know, I tend to be more of a character and acting and dialogue type guy. Kubrick is not really the person that you go to for that. You can find wonderful characters and wonderful performances in his films, but that is not usually the priority. And so, um, so yeah, like if nothing else, last week's discussion and. This week's discussion has caused in me like an intense desire to rewatch The Shining, but I still don't think I would be scared by it. It never frightened me. I don't know. Yeah, well, and again, the, I, the first time I saw it, 
in the theaters when I was, I don't know, 10 or however however old, I didn't make it all the way through. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just a combination of – I mean, I I barely made it through the interview at the beginning. (laughs) And I think it was just the the power of the the music at the beginning that Wendy Carlos version of Dies Irae is – you know, apocalyptic. It's the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and I think something even just about the way, like the Steadicam follows Jack as he walks into the hotel, that it's so smooth and it's got so much forward momentum. I feel like it's dragging me in hmm. um, where I don't want to go. And as I'm trying to dig my heels in, I'm getting dragged forward deeper into the hotel anyway. Um, and have, having seen the tra- had it, I had already seen the trailer, so I knew as nice a guy as he seemed at the beginning where this was all heading, and I couldn't I, I, I couldn't take it back then. Hmm. But um, well, there's different I guess there's different trailers. The famous one that I know is the trailer that's just the blood coming out of the. Do you know the one I'm talking oh, about? Absolutely, in slow motion. One of the most amazing trailers in trailer history. And the, do you remember a few years ago that the initial teaser trailer for 2012, the Roland Emmerich? movie that was it a play on the shining i mean it was uh it was pretty much the exact same music that and it was the like the mountains being washed away by the ocean in slow motion and like at no point did it like nod directly to the shining trailer but once someone pointed out to me like hey watch these two teaser trailers Mm -hmm. uh right after one another it's very clear that the, the 2012 trailer was made uh it was inspired by that that shining teaser oh that's cool I have um, to assume that's the only inspiration <laughs> that it got from that movie. <laughs> haven't seen 2012. Maybe it's great. Maybe, Maybe it's great. I haven't seen it either. Um, now, uh, would you, I guess, in making this film, you talk about your other films, The Ash from Hell and Visions of Terror. Give me the, uh, give me the, uh, what the impression that you are a horror fan. Oh sure. Um, what do you do? I guess is are, are you interested in The Shining more as a horror fan or as a Kubrick fan or is that a, an arbitrary distinction? I would say probably more as a Kubrick fan. Um, I love horror movies. I uh-huh. don't keep up with. I, I certainly haven't been keeping up with them that much of late. Um, you know, I like horror movies and I love Kubrick movies. Um, uh, who do you? I guess is is The Shining your favorite Kubrick film? Though, whichever one is the one I've watched last. You know, <laughs> really? I, um, I certainly love Doctor Strange, Love and Lolita, and um, Pats of Glory. Um, Barry Lyndon. I love Barry Lyndon. Some I, people. Put, I didn't mean to. I didn't yeah. mean to be uh, glib about it. Like I think it's beautiful, but I it it seems to be the one that even the hardcore Kubrick fans are just like. Buh. Because it <laughs> because it's not very disturbing, I guess. Oh, that's actually incredibly disturbing. <laughs> you, you know the, um, the whole the, the way his whole life, you know, falls to pieces at the end, or that fight he has with his son mm-hmm. in front of like everybody in formal wear. It's terrifying. Um. <laughs> um, now, uh, I, I I know from our discussion with uh, Matt, who saw uh, Room Two Thirty Seven, that you use clips. From other Kubrick films, such as Eyes Wide Shut, right? Am I right in in the film? I use well, there's a complicated visual strategy to illustrate okay. what people are saying <laughs> in the film. Um, but I guess I want to talk about Eyes Wide Shut because I think that's 
a film that seems to have a mixed reputation, and I think I have, from the beginning, been on board with Eyes Wide Shut, but maybe for different reasons than when I was 16 when I saw it in the theater. I think Eyes Wide Shut is just like The Shining. When it uh-huh. came out, people were very had very mixed feelings about it, mm-hmm. and as time goes by, people are into it, you know, and do a search on YouTube for Eyes Wide Shut, and you'll see these great little, you know, if... Room 237 is a big, long analysis. There's all these little short ones of – and there's a ton of stuff on Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. um, ton of appreciations, analyses um, through it. Yeah, I do remember um, at the time because, yeah, I went and saw it uh, the, the day of release um, and I was uh, 17 at the time. And I was uh, very excited to get to see a, a Kubrick film in the in the theater, mm-hmm. and I w- I loved it. I thought it was great. But and the person I went to see it with, a friend of ours, uh, Matt Bennett, he enjoyed it as well. But like it was playing at that theater in Springfield, Springfield, Missouri. Yeah, and it was completely full. And oh, yeah. I was like, I really wish that I had had like a questionnaire or something and just passed it out to people and be like. <laughs> I want to know what you think. Well, I think this is the perfect opportunity for me to tell my Eyes Wide Shut uh, story, which I'm sure I've told in the podcast before, but I love telling. It's a good story. Because, um, you know, the, uh, as you know, Roddy, the last thing that happened in the film, Nicole Kimmins says, you know what we have to do now. Sure. Fuck. And um, so the movie ends, you know, uh, we're standing up and, uh, you know, gathering our stuff. And there was, I was with two of my friends who were sitting to the left of me. Directly to the right of me was an elderly couple. I'd say, I mean, I'd say at least, at least in their late 60s. And the the man is like putting on uh, his his windbreaker. Whatever he leans over to me and he says, "What was that last thing she said?" <laughs> I, 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 I'm 16 now. This is um uh, this is uh, if you remember uh, people who were are my age definitely remember post Columbine. There was this weird crackdown on R-rated movies. Like yeah. they were really checking IDs. So oh, I had yeah? I had gotten into this movie with a friend's ID who kind of like had a shaved head and kind of looked like me. Um, so I'm I'm 16. They're under false pretenses to begin with. Here's this uh, senior citizen asking me what was the last thing she said. So what and did so you say? I mushed up the the gumption. I swallowed and I said, "Fuck." And he goes, "That's what I thought." <laughs> <And then they laughs> That's awesome. I have to assume that before that he goes, "Hey, watch me, watch me make this teenager uncomfortable." And <laughs> <laughs> if I was gonna. If I have one criticism of Eyes Wide Shut, though, it's the same thing that happened. It's, it's, I don't think he learned the lesson of Spider-Man 1, <laughs> which is characters whose entire faces are covered mm-hmm. speaking um, with sort of what sounds, like, what sounds like a voiceover gets to be really silly and really weird mm-hmm. really quickly. So like you'll notice in all the Spider-Man movies, they find ways that to get his mask – torn below his nose very uh-huh. quickly he pulls it up to kiss uh, to kiss his girlfriend or he gets slashed in the mm-hmm. fight but like there's a scene where he's talking to the green goblin and they've each got these face these masks that totally obscure their faces and it's like a weird episode of the mighty Morphin power rangers yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> In the ballroom scene where Tom Cruise is talking to the girl and she's warning him and they both have these full face masks and the voice quality is clearly recorded outside in the studio. It gets a little weird. Do you think it, that's – oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'll just say, you know, not that I am anyone to give him 
advice, but I would have tried to find masks that you know ended below the cheeks <laughs> to see uh, to the, the but, lips move. Uh, given the uh, recent internet hubbub about Bane's voice in the in the uh, Dark Knight Rises teaser. Do you think that's why Christopher Nolan decided to have a muffled voice for that? For uh, what, what what you lose in audibility, you gain in verisimilitude and general creepiness. <laughs> sure. Because uh, another thing, um, I don't know if you saw Immortals, but um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it's very good. I actually loved it. Uh, uh, Mickey Rourke wears a mask mask for most of uh, for large parts of the movie, and his voice is muffled, and it does cut down on that weirdness because you actually feel like this is what it would sound like if mm-hmm. you were talking to me. And it's interesting what you were uh, what you were talking about with the Spider Man thing, where you just like we need to be able to in some way connect with the humanity of a character that we are supposed to be rooting for because that was always my like i logically understand that but also there's a different kind of logic like when i watch iron man and iron man 2 like i understand like they cut to like an extreme close-up of like tony's face when he's, when he's in the suit and it's like that i get but then like when it's time for him to have a conversation <clears throat> well in the midst of a battle like the like the the suit will like Jeff Bridges' suit opens. Mickey Rourke takes his helmet off, and same with uh, Tony. He takes his helmet off so they can have a chat. And it's like you're in the middle of a fight. <laughs> like you have this. This is armor, and you have it for a reason. Like I, I understand. I and I knew going in. It's like they they want to show the star's face. I get that, but like. Well, I mean, they're working with me. the impossible challenge of bringing a comic book to life. Yeah. You know, and, you know, there's the, from the whole spectrum of Dick Tracy to Sin City to Dark Knight Rises or wherever, they, you know, try to bring it, they approach it on different levels of how comic booky versus how realistic, though realism is always an impossible trap mm-hmm. in a movie. But, like, if you look at the Iron Man comics, they would always, they would do subtle things like, if his mouth if that mouth slit is supposed to be relatively straight from the way he would tilt his head up or down it could look like he's smiling or grimacing yeah. and his eyes would be tilting up or down in a way that was probably a cheat yeah but that you could still feel some sort of face in spider-man they would certainly change the angle of the of his eyes or make the um, spider sense rays come out to show that he's upset yeah um and find a way for it to work and since you know if you're reading the um word balloons you don't need to worry about the timber of his voice. Um, right. No matter what kind of audio earbuds you're wearing, um, that, <laughs> that the voice, you don't have to simulate it coming through the cloth, mm-hmm. which on the one hand, when you simulate it coming through the cloth, it gets less audible, but it sounds more realistic. And where are you going to put that slider bet- between A to B? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things like with the Iron Man thing. I had to just tell myself like it's a practical concern for the filmmakers. None of this is real, Tyler. Just go with it. It's fine. I understand that they would want to wear their armor in a battle, but it is a movie. Just deal with it. It's fine. It's not going to be V for Vendetta. Well, know? I think the cut into like that black void where his face is with the computer stuff yeah. is a great solution. Yeah. That it's not any place realistic because the camera is still you know, about a foot away from him. Mm-hmm. But they find a way to connect us with his face. And it's Robert Downey Jr. who's an incredibly appealing expressive actor, mm-hmm. um, much more so than a plain metal mask. Um, Robert Downey Jr. is more expressive and better than the real Tony Stark, who is a drawing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and even RoboCop, which is you know one of my all-time favorite movies, um, 
just that little piece of his mouth is able to be so expressive. I mean, yeah. there's the scene where he goes to his um, family's house after he's trying to figure out who he is, and he has the flashbacks about his family, and he realizes how much he's lost, and his whole posture changes. And you can see, both in his body language and the way that he purses his lips, how much emotion he's able to convey, even you know, without his eyes, mm-hmm. which is a huge compromise for an actor yeah. what, are you, what are your thoughts about the uh, seemingly inevitable Robocop remake and Joel Kinnaman as the possible lead I don't know who that is uh, did you watch The Killing on AMC no okay he was in that uh, did you see Safe House with Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds no he was in that <laughs> and he had a very small role in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as well the American one yeah yeah like, I've got a I've got like a year and a half year old <laughs> baby um, at home I don't get out to the movies right i haven't been getting out to the movies the last year or two as much as i used to um you're busy making them well that's that, the way i look at it all right uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that um you know well i mean in general my my feeling in remakes is i try not to get too precious about you know people destroying you know these things that are precious to me and robocop really is a movie that's really important to me and it's one of my i, I think the way that they balance satire action and real drama is kind of has never been touched and i think not that it's literally a comic book but i think it's the best comic book style movie mm-hmm. with comic book you know sort of physics and kind of characters and drama mm-hmm. um and i think it's also a hilarious successful satire yeah full of incredibly well-drawn characters um you know that said you know i Remakes are kind of inevitable, and the good thing about remakes is that the original always gets a great restoration and a prominent release. And if the remake isn't as good, it sort of gets dragged under this back out by the tide, like the Stepford Wives. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not that the original is that easy to find, but the remake has kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought that the um, remake of um, um, what was it? The, the first one was uh, Frank Sinatra, Manchurian Candidate, candidate yeah. which you know I yes. I adore the original, but I thought the remake was kind of cool. I thought it was pretty good as well. I mean, it's uh, in, in a way that Demi, doesn't right? trample on the it, yeah. It's it's about a different thing in, in yeah. some ways, but it was kind of cool. Although for whatever reason, it's kind of I think disappeared, and that the original is easier to find. Yeah. Um, I was reading an article about uh, Meryl Streep in uh, Entertainment Weekly, and it showed a picture of her from the insuring candidate and i was like oh yeah <laughs> but she did like a hillary thing it was she's yeah and she's very good in it the movie itself is actually it's it's, it's very good it should be remembered i think yeah um i'm trying to think if there was ever if there's ever been a remake that has su- sullied the reputation of the of an original great like the dawn of the dead one is interesting because mm-hmm. i prefer the original but the new one was very good yeah. especially the first you know half hour is amazing yeah, yeah. um and they both you know are happily coexist i, I think um my my feeling with the Rob- because i'm su- such a big fan of robocop that uh when i first hear about a first hear about a remake there is a fanboy sort of knee-jerk yeah. reaction to be like but then i have to remember myself remind myself that if if robocop 3 couldn't sully the original then a remake yeah. won't yeah well and when Darren Aronofsky was going to do it originally, I was actually kind of wary because I think he's a talented filmmaker and a really great visual stylist, but I don't think he's very funny. Right, yeah. And Robocop is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't. this new guy, I know he did, is it Elite Squad, I think? Oh, is that who they're? Yeah, that's right. Which I haven't seen. I, I hear it's very good. I've heard, yeah, <laughs> I've heard also heard good things. Um, I think the only... 
the only time I can remember an original being sullied by another iteration would be Blair Witch. Oh, really? You think? I, think I never the Bla- saw the sequel. I think the Blair Witch sequel was so unpopular that it retroactively ruined the reputation of the first. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm not sure if this would qualify as like sullying the original, but it is unfortunate that like sometimes the remake with a certain generation of people, like there'll be a, this happens with horror films. I think like mm-hmm. there'll be a remake and then a sequel to the remake and then a weird prequel to the remake, like to the point where when I make reference to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I anybody like 25 or younger, I need to specify the year because to the like to some people. That's the only one. And because it has spawned other things, uh, sequels to itself, I think now that is seen as the only franchise uh, to some people. And um, when they made the sequel to the remake, they didn't make a remake of the sequel. Right. Because <laughs> the original sequel is awesome. Mm-hmm. The, Dennis, the Hopper? Dennis Hopper one <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> um, uh, 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 we should probably wrap up pretty soon. We're going over, over an hour. But uh, – it's something I want to talk about all this Kubrick talk. Um, just last night I rewatched uh, "There Will Be Blood," Paul Thomas Anderson's yeah, great film. Movie. That I think. What's that? Great movie. Yeah, but I also think. I mean, maybe not any. Maybe not as overt ways as uh, the, uh, of ways as as you see Scorsese in Hard Eight or you see uh, Altman in Magnolia. You definitely see Kubrick in There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, do you agree? And what other filmmakers? Well, I think I hear Kubrick oh, yeah. in There Will Be Blood, yeah. especially in the soundtrack at the beginning of uh-huh. those mountainscapes that feels like the beginning of 2001. Right. Um, I think an interesting thing you know, to, go back to, to get back to Kubrick, sorry, is That's <laughs> a lot of people that I talk to about him see Kubrick as a better version of themselves, which is to say um, – I've been teaching an editing class like the last two years. So lately as I've been watching his movies, um, I look at them through the prism of how they're edited. Um, you know, some of the non-linear um, structure of the killing, some of the amazing jump cuts in 2001 or The Shining. Um, some of the people I interview see him through the eyes of the – through the context of their discipline. As he's a journalist, he's a historian, he's yeah. a this, he's a that. And I was talking about this idea um, to Jonathan Snipes, who put together this amazing him and his partner, Bill Hudson, um, soundtrack for us. Like, this is great analog synthesizer um, soundtrack. And they said, Wow, I see Kubrick, and this is to your There Will Be Blood thing, uh-huh. as the best um, music supervisor. <laughs> that the juxtapositions, especially like his ironic use of music, you mm-hmm. know, the love theme to while the airplanes are refueling in mm-hmm. um, Doctor Strange Love, mm-hmm. you know, the waltz as the spaceships are docking in 2001, singing in the rain, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that he. He, he was he he was really early in seeing the possibilities of working that way and working with music that way, and yeah, just some of the music choices, especially at the beginning of uh, There Will Be Blood, put me into that world really quickly. Do you see anyone else as a? Uh... Well, I mean Fincher a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to say, you know, because I think Kubrick, you know, there's. 
you can look at him as a visual stylist, in which case, you know, Wes Anderson or a lot of folks frame things symmetrically in a way that the shots look kind of like the way he frames shots. But, you know, if you talk about his sense of satire, um, maybe Paul Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking about... And they're both, they're also both very grandiose. Sure. I, I think. <laughs> sure. Um you know, so depending where you're coming, or, or I think even like if you're looking at the way the sort of the some of the awkward silences and like the weird conversational rhythms in The Shining, I see in like episodes of The Office, you know, <laughs> or you know other cringe comedies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think his, you know I don't know that there's one person who really um, gets it all mm-hmm. or is is doing. Is doing the whole thing. I think that's based on him. Uh, I think that's a great place to to wrap things up and mm-hmm. and give people, including me, uh, stuff to think about in watching movies uh, going forward. So, um, uh, real quick, let me remind you: you can find us at battleshippretension.com where there's not only can you listen to the episodes, but also read plenty of uh, reviews of theatrical releases, home video releases, and all sorts of other fun uh, articles and, and features. You can email us uh, your thoughts on uh, Stanley Kubrick or anything else we discussed, uh, David at BattleshipRetention dot com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention dot com. I David will never going to answer your emails. <laughs> Tyler won't. Yeah, <laughs> I try to do uh, better. I'm on Twitter at the Pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at MoreThanOneLesson dot com. And my other podcast is the weekly television review show, previously on, which is on previous at, at Previously on show.com. So, Rodney, where can people find uh, you and your work on the internet? Well, um, RodneyAsher.com. I'm on Twitter at, at Rodney underscore Asher. Um, I've got stuff in a half dozen places, but that'll get them within spitting distance. <laughs> well, uh, I look forward to um, watching some of the films that uh, we've discussed and, mm-hmm. and revisiting um, some of my favorite Jack Chick tracks. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll do that post, uh, post haste. Thank you, Roddy, for being on the show. Oh, yeah, thank, thank you, guys. You. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank you, listeners, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Take it easy. Bye.